Hello and welcome to Court Games, a Legend of the Five Rings podcast funded by the Legend of the Five Rings Discord Patreon. This podcast will focus on the role-playing game stories and lore for Legend of the Five Rings. I'm Korva. I'm Kikita Kaori. And today for our podcast, we are going to talk about social contract theory because there's been a <laughs> yes i know because i'm a nerd um and also because there's been discussion on discord uh recently where people are having trouble with players kind of getting into the samurai mindset and uh the idea of working for the establishment and so on and i think a big part of that is just um we don't talk about social contract theory very much anymore. And, but in historically, even if they didn't use that term, um, it was a very fundamental part of um, kind of discussion or a way of thinking about the world. So we're going to try and, uh, you know, it certainly was uh, very much uh, on the minds of philosophers and writers during like the American Revolution and the uh, founding of the United States on our side. And of course, that all came from, <laughs> you know, European thought. Um, but it's it, those contracts, the idea of social contract theory is kind of a, a fundamental structure of the world that we just don't talk about right now. So I thought maybe we'd talk about that and talk about some basics of it and how it would apply to Rokugan and maybe something you can talk to your players about um, to see if it helps get them in the samurai mindset a little bit better. This is all sort of why we're talking about basic, this this very abstract sounding philosophical thing. And it's essentially how to understand your character's relationship to the world and why they're doing what they're doing. So it is, it is, it is, the whole point is to get something kind of concrete at the end of it, which is getting to understand why your character would do what they're asked to do and that sort of thing. So it does all make sense. Yeah, but we have a little news. Yeah. So the latest novel, the latest Daidoji Shin novel by Josh Reynolds is out, and this is The Flower Path, in which our esteemed and very socially upright, haha, Daidoji Shin, the the the, uh, the dilettante. Well, his his new hobby of setting up a kabuki theatre is having its grand opening, and I'm sure absolutely nothing will go wrong. Only something goes wrong, and uh, it becomes a locked room mystery. Only more of a locked theatre mystery, and uh, so that is out now uh, wherever good books are sold. So. Um... I, I enjoyed this. I, I'm not sure I enjoyed it more than than the other two Daedrician mysteries, though it was fun to see uh, some characters that may come from the L5R card game show up in there. And I thought the mystery itself was fairly compelling um, at the end, uh, at least the pieces of it. You know, I, I didn't necessarily guess who it would be. Yeah, which is always good. <laughs> I have to admit, like, I mostly enjoyed this and the things I didn't like. One of them is a kind of nitpicky and I suspect will be a, I deliberately made this choice to make, you know, because this is the novel I wanted to write. 
And one is, I think, uh, kind of not following the rules of murder mysteries. And I'm not... Yeah. So what's, what, what are the issues? The main, the main thing is that this is a kabuki theatre, right? And kabuki never historically shared the same place in society that the theatre does in Western society, you know, British and American. So the way I was thinking of it, if someone says, I'm going to go to the opera tonight, right, you're going to form a particular opinion about that sort of person, the sort of person who goes to the opera. And then you've got someone, and admittedly we don't really have this anymore. I think in America I would say vaudeville or possibly even burlesque. If someone's going, I'm going to the vaudeville show, you've got a particular opinion um, on who that person is. In Britain, I'd say music hall, right? But if someone says I'm going to the theatre, right, that's a kind of middle ground between those two. Like the opera is, is your rich people and your very educated people and, you know, the real, the kind of the jet sets. And vaudeville and burlesque and music hall, those are your, you know, the lower class, the working class people, right? And the theatre can be middle class, uh, someone with aspirations, uh, you know, a working class person with aspirations might say, I'm going to, th- I'm going to the theatre, right? But, you know, the upper crust would entirely happily go to the theatre and that sort of thing. And Kabuki just never was that. Kabuki was lower class. That was no, wasn't it? No is the opera. In that sense, that's where it, that kind of where socially it fits. I mean, they're both music and dancing in a way, but no is for the upper class and the upper crust, right? There are, there were shoguns who performed no and were obsessed by no. And, and that was perfectly fine and lovely. But honestly, the great and the good, who are the people that Daidoji Shin interacts with, and we're talking children of clan champions and, you know, representatives to the city of the Rich Frog, which is one of the richest places in Rokugan and very important, they would not be seen dead going to Kabuki. Right. Really, I mean, it just, there isn't that middle. But I think what we're going for, I mean, I think what we're going for is that very, I would almost say 1920s Playboy detective theatre story. And I totally get that. And this is what this is. This is what it ends up being. It certainly had a uh, Globe Theater vibe uh, per Shakespeare with your uh, groundlings and your uh, booths. I think it was closer on, to that, yeah. Uh, in, in the book. But uh, I did have a question with that in regards to like 47 Ronin and the climax of that. Was he doing, was that Kabuki or no? That's Kabuki and Bunraku. Uh, the puppet place. Right, that's what I thought. Right, and I, that was being performed for the upper crust. So he may have been getting it from some other source. Yeah, I mean, I just don't think that because I just, I just don't think it, it quite. There is, I don't think it is anything that quite fits where where this novel is set, if you like. It's a unique Rokugan thing. For the Rokugan found in the Daijoji Shin books. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that is literally it. <laughs> that it was, it was just a nitpick. And I mean, I, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. 
Unfortunately, it's a nitpick that, that like is going throughout the entire book, which is unfortunate. But I mean, I, yeah, I love the characters and I love all the, all the other things and the ins and outs. And Daidoji Shin is a delight, as is his bodyguard and and that kind of friend. And there's another bodyguard who shows up, and there's this interesting back and forth between the two of them, which I thought was really. I mean, there's lots of good stuff, and it's very difficult to talk about my other problem without spoiling the entire book. Which I don't want to do. Oh well, maybe some other time then. But uh, go ahead and ask. Go and ask Kovar on it online. Yeah, once once you've read it yourself, um, you because I, I I don't want to spoil it for you. I really don't because there's a lot to like. And if you if you don't care about that thing, I care about, and it's entirely fair. If you think no, I don't care. I I want Kabuki to be that kind of thing where the with the great and the good can go to the, the booths and and stuff, and the common people can be in the in the in the crowd, go for it. I mean, it, it the 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 right the rest of the writing is lovely. The characters are great, and it was compelling. It was compelling to read through. So, I mean, you know, I'm a picky. I'm a picky guy. So, you know. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we have to now go on to talk about social contract theory because you know, expose my nerd nerdiness. <laughs> so, as I said, this has been a recurring concept. A topic on Discord and other areas where people discuss L5R. Basically, samurai society is futile and it's basically undefensible by modern standards. Absolutely. I would not want to live there on any side of it. Yeah, you, know, you know, you would not want a modern society set up this way. This tends to lead to players having a hard time getting into a samurai mindset or a circumstance at all where they could see a peasant rebellion as not being the good thing, defensible. And I have always said it is really interesting that none of us ever talk about any other game setting like this. Yeah, not really, no. But uh, it does get to this broader concept of how our societies created and how are they sustained. And that kind of leads to this idea of social contract theory. So we'll talk about that. Right. So I think we, we do need to kind of start off by saying uh, we're not sociologists or philosophers or historians or anything like that. And the whole point is to simplify this and apply it specifically to rock again you know to your game that you're playing so you know this don't take this as any kind of like textbook or anything like that or expect us to argue with you about it you know because <laughs> you might be a historian or a philosophy and we're not and so we might get aspects of this wrong and you know it's like yeah that's fine <laughs> all right the basics of social contract theory is this idea that social groups are created when a generally or unwritten or unspoken contract is formed between individual members of a group and the group itself. So that kind of unstated, unwritten contract is called the social contract. And there's three basic kinds of social contract. There's a familial social contract, a tribal social contract and a governmental social contract. There might be other kinds, but those are the three we're going to, we're going to talk about today. 
I think all three of those are important for understanding the structure of Rokugan and the various allegiances and loyalties and issues that samurai have in society. Because those three contracts don't have to agree with each other. And when a social contract is systematically broken, group cohesion eventually fails, and the organization, whatever it is, the family, the tribal government, falls apart. And this leads to chaos and insecurity and a lot of other problems. So that's that. Do you have any thoughts on kind of the, what a social contract is on your side? Whether necessarily this is how people think about it is, is one thing. But yeah, I think these ideas are, are pretty strong. And it is possible for these, the familial, tribal, and governmental, these social contracts to create interesting conflicts for your game. Mm-hmm. And, and, and any stories you may wish to tell within Rock Again. So this is one of the reasons why we want to do this is to, to, you know, take all this theory and make it into interesting stuff for your game. At least give you the tools to think about it that way, you know. Um, so the earliest kind of um, social contract to form within an area, um, kind of the most basic structure, is the familial social contract. This is based on a family. It's people united by blood. The core contract, then, of the familial social contract is that older generations will care for and raise younger generations who will, in turn, care for and support the older generations. Mm-hmm. Right? So in human societies, um, this tends to work on a kind of a three-generation system. You have the oldest generation, which is kind of the grandparents, if you want to think. Their job to the f- familial unit is to give wisdom and guidance, and they also give an inheritance. So that means that, you know, over their lives, they've inquired stuff that they will in turn pass on to the younger generations with their death or before their death. In return for passing their inheritance and giving wisdom and guidance, they get support and respect and reverence from the younger generations back. The middle generation is the parents. They give their labor and support and defense to both the older generations and the younger generations. These are the people who are most physically capable, intellectually capable of providing for the family unit. They build the inheritance of the family unit. In return, they receive guidance from the older generation and they get the inheritance anything the elder generation has built, they, they get to control. And they are supposed to get, you know, in particular, respect from the younger generation. And then the youngest generation are the children. And they're supposed to give respect and obedience to the older generations. And then they receive, in turn, support, education, guidance, and defense from the older generations, along with the promise of inheritance someday. That's the core thing. You know, parents take care of kids and then kids grow up to take care of parents and sustain the family unit by having kids of their own so that the contract keeps passing from one generation to the next. And the the thing you need to, to keep in mind is that this tends to be extended families living together. I think we are, in the modern day, very used to parents and kids and that's it, the nuclear family. 
but you can end up with your grandparents and all their kids, the aunts and uncles, as well as your parents, and then there's you and all your cousins, and they become kind of this bigger family uh, than just a nuclear family, and that, that can be a little bit different to what we're used to. Right. How much support goes outside of that nuclear core varies by society. But the kind of even in the nuclear family, the contract is still the same. Depending on precisely what kind of society you've got, when we say, you know, the older generation give guidance to the younger generation, that can be really strict. And the Rockyani society is, is more along that side of the, the gradient there. They're kind of the older members of the family have a lot of sway over what the youngers should do which leads on to our next um little subject little right. topic here is because th- there can be other provisions in it that have been added into like tradition or just the family structure so certain family members can be required to follow particular courses of study. I mean, I think we're all familiar with the stereotypical um, you must be a doctor or a lawyer kind of thing. And in Rokugan, it's you will follow this path. You will follow in the tradition of your father. You will, you will go to the dojo that your mother attended. This is where you're going. This is what you're learning. You can end up with very strict gender norms, not necessarily. And I think... Our modern FFG rock again is a bit more forgiving, but in some societies, it's very clear. Boys do this. Girls do this. That's it. Right. Now, in, in, as, for, as you said, FFG is much more, uh, much more forgiving and it's not as expected, but um, definitely if you, that is a change from Japanese behavior. By gender norms, that could be something like, you know, women are required to wear this clothing and men wear this clothing. And, uh, you know, women are required to do this at this age, including marriage. Men are required to do that. These these very, very strict definitions of the gender norms are very common in families. Yeah, it can vary from family to family, but also society to society. So... If you particularly want to have that as a conflict for a character, then your family, the, your character's family might be very strict. If that's a thing you want to introduce, yeah. Right. Rokugan as a whole uh, in FFG-verse doesn't have it, but a family absolutely could. Yeah. If you want that. And a, a final thing that might might crop up is the the your this family that we're talking about for your character a particular family may forbid family members from pursuing certain activities or associating with certain people so you know you can't talk to that lot we're feuding with this other group you know you you no no son of mine will open the the tower of shinsei that kind of thing that sort of thing exactly now in our modern society the idea of adding these provisions above, you know, <laughs> you love and care for your parents and you love and care for your children um, is considered almost always bad. It's just not but done. It certainly but happens in the real world. It certainly happens in the real world. Um, and, you know, um, it's 
you know, whether we consider it good or bad, like I said, it's almost always considered bad. It happens today. It's very regular. So, and it, and it always has. I don't want to limit so. some, because some people immediately, because I'm, I suddenly realized that I was talking about, when I was talking about you, 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 you're a doctor or you're a lawyer. It's a very traditional stereotype of the Asian tiger mom, right? But it's not like Western families don't do the exact same thing. Oh, absolutely. No son of mine is going to be a garbage man. No, you know. Or and sometimes no son of mine is going to college. You're not going to become one of those, you know, right. you know, well, those fancy, you know, people with their $10 words. How dare you? You're going down the mines. Right. Or vice versa. All my children will go to college. Or, you know, there's certain professions that are just completely off bar that have nothing to do with you know, the tiger mom stereotype, you could probably find some aspect of it in your own families if you look hard enough. And for anyone who's had familial trauma, I, I am sorry if we raised it. I will, I'm just going to add one other note here, which is an, uh, an L5R terminology thing. When we're talking about families here, we're talking about not the capital F great clan family thing, because those are enormous enormous organizations with thousands upon thousands of people. We're talking about one person, their parents, their grandparents, right? This is like a small F family, although I'm sure to the person in it, it's a capital F, <laughs> if you see what I mean. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not like the Daidoji family. It's this group of people who live in this house and possibly this kind of collection. Yes, even when they're apart from each other, they don't need to live together. It's it's uh, it's this relationship by immediate blood. So there are limits to the family relationship. Yeah, you know, we've talked about some ways that requirements that they have provisions that are are in the structure, but there's also limits. It does require membership in the family group through very specific channels. Normally, it's like birth to pay off death. <laughs> That's the obvious one. It's very slow to introduce new members to the group, especially if introducing them not as part of the youngest generation. Because it is generational, that means there's a long time from the costs going into the benefits. I mean, a, a baby doesn't provide much to the family in and of themselves. Yeah, right? stupid babies. So the rest of the family doesn't get a lot. Of, <laughs> they don't get a lot of benefit from that, and it could take years before that addition pays off. So, um, and then you get to the middle generation where they feel the costs. They're doing all the work, but they don't necessarily feel like they're getting any benefits. They're they're not relaxing. They haven't done it. They feel like they've been working. They're not getting much wisdom from the older generations or anything that they, they value highly, but they're putting in a lot of labor at that stage. And then the oldest generation receives all the benefits, but if they haven't paid into the family, they don't necessarily have the costs, if that makes sense. So it's hard to introduce somebody at an old age to a family because they haven't fulfilled their side of the social contract. It's hard to introduce somebody who would be a vulnerability into the family. And so this gets to the concept of marriage, <laughs> because that's bringing somebody from these middle generations from one family group to another. And this can also refer to adult adoption, although that's, that's 
mm-hmm. a slightly different thing. So essentially in a marriage, you've got a person who's just, you know, they're moving from being a child who has no rights and some responsibilities, but they're, you know, they have very little fit. They're, they're moving into that middle generation where they get now expected to really kind of work for the family. And they're moving from one family group to another. And that obviously changes things. So in, in, in a very strong family oriented society, there's often a lot of, we're going to really make sure we know who's coming in and we're going to get, take a while to know them and, and so on and so on and so forth. So these things can be, it can take a while. Very often, if they're, because they're essentially leaving their home, their original family and moving into a new one. So they are losing the inheritance that they would have gotten had they stayed with their original family. But that means they often get that as a dowry to take with them to the new family, depending on exactly the social setup. They may take it back if there's a divorce. Because sometimes there's another thing where if a lower class person, you know, when I say lower class, it's depending on how that the, the, the family they're marrying into, what do they see? How do they see this person? They may see that person as not bringing as much to the table as they could be. And sometimes the dowry is to kind of make up that difference, which sounds really terrible. Like none of, none of this, but I love him. Yeah, yeah, but no, he's going to have to pay his way if he's going to come into our family. Like that's a very foreign concept. Right. If that person's a liability, you know, if we had, ra- if we had raised this person, we would have done these things to them so that they would be a good resource for us later on. But we didn't raise them and you, you over there raised them and they are not as good as our children. And therefore, now they're a liability. So we need some extra to make up for the fact that we're going to now you know, have this less than adequate person coming in. It sounds very restrictive, right? And I think it makes a lot of sense when we think of, if we're imagining like a, like a middle-class society, a middle-class family who, you know, they're doing more like a clerical job or something along those lines, most of, most of the characters we'll be playing will be kind of in this middle class and even upper class, honestly. But a lot of this stuff happens from families that are like, you can imagine a farming or hunter-gatherer family where you have mouths to feed and you must directly work to get food or everyone starves to death. And so you can have situations where there are lots of children in the family at the minute, which means there are lots of mouths to feed, but there's not that much labor, either hunting or farming or whatever it is. You have other situations where the children are now of an age where they can do chores and they can help. They're still living with the family. The oldest generation, they're still pretty hale and active. So now we've now we've got loads of labor. We've got loads of people coming in and getting stuff done. But then the parent, the grandparents are getting older and the young adults are now marrying and leaving. And so suddenly this family has much less and it can be very cyclical. And this is why stuff like this becomes very important. And even when the society starts to move on technologically and you have people who don't need to literally worry about where the next meal's coming from, even if they don't directly work for their food, those attitudes are still there. 
That's why this stuff's so very important because it feels like the family could literally fail to function and could literally just not have enough food. Mm-hmm. How are family contracts enforced? So most major religions of the world, and definitely something like Confucianism, have kind of honor your father and mother clauses in one sense or another, because, you know, religion carries the role of teaching the values from the older generation onto the younger generation. It's one of the things religion does, uh, is try and give these values to the next generation. And therefore, the worries and the concerns of the people passing it on are the older generation. That's why religions tend to have the honor your father and mother and not the you'd think would be really important, but not included the don't abuse your children uh, clause, which uh, should be there. It really should. (laughs) It really should. But it isn't because religion is passed through the in the family contract from the older generation to the younger generation. And the older generation is more concerned about being taken care of. And they know they'll they don't need to be told by anybody to to do it or you know this is the elder generation thinking it's it's educating the the young to to do their responsibilities to live up to the contract so there's spiritual enforcement there for the family social contract many tribal or governmental social contracts include enforcement provisions to compel the enforcement of familial social contracts and you'll think that's oppression right you know, messing with my family, except every law against child abuse, every law requiring child support, all of those are enforcement to familial social contracts, basically. And it can be as subtle as those looks your family gets from their neighbors. Your tribe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the people around you are going to have opinions about how you're being raised and how you're raising your kids and and how you're doing stuff. And that's a really, really important thing, especially because you, each family group is very likely, certainly back in the subsistence hunter-gatherer slash farming days, you rely on those folks, on those, those, those bits, those years where you have less labor because the kids are still growing up, you take from them. And when you're richer because you've got more labor because the kids are growing up and they're helping, you help them. It's really important what their opinion is of you. Mm-hmm. And and all of this, this family group thing, we do have human bonds. You know, there there is supposed to be uh, love between your parent and child, and that should be reciprocated in healthy relationships. It's not a given, sadly, unfortunately. Um, but but it is. It is a part of the enforcement mechanism that keeps this whole thing thing running. So we wanted to mention. You do have to think about, like, it is terrible the way parents have such control over their children. But you do have to remember that, you know, children can can be idiots. They can, like I certainly was. And, you know, you, you need to do, you need to stop them from running out in the road in the path of that you know, vehicle, whether it be a horse or a car or whatever. You need to stop them from grabbing the sharp objects. You need to stop them from burning the house down, you know? So there is that thing where you have to enforce control because they don't yet know enough to be left unsupervised. It's just when does that stop? When does that change? And that's something that's very different from society to society. Mm -hmm. But it's all happening in this whole 
familial uh, social contract. Yeah, the ideal is I exert control over my children so that they can learn and when they are ready they can they will be able to make their own decisions and you know they'll have all the tools that they need that's the ideal it's just not necessarily that's that isn't always what happens right it's sometimes broken and that is an issue so so the next section having talked about how these these bonds work and and how they're enforced and all that sort of stuff what happens when this breaks down and generally the older family members generally they're the patriarch or the matriarch depending they're generally the ones who decide if the contract has been broken older generations generally can't be like pushed out that's that's almost never done but they can end up being basically sidelined by the younger generation so yeah, if an, if you have a person who is old now, um, considering they have already fulfilled their part of the contract for the most part with their labor during their their middle generation years, but now they're not providing wisdom. Now they're being wasteful with resources or foolish or something. Not normally just sick, but like a liability. Being overly autocratic or whatever, yeah. Right. The The rest of the family can um, basically cocoon them, just keep them from the information that they need, keep them out of sight and otherwise, you know, ignore them. That's what happens with the older generations. Yeah, it's, you, you don't quite get put in a home, but, you know, <laughs> you get to stay in your room or maybe go out on the balcony but no one, you don't, you don't have any mm-hmm. actual power anymore. For younger generations, certainly the younger they are, or at least the younger middle generation, and kind of, you know, you know the ones who, it, it, the less, the less uh, you kind of like married and have kids of your own. If you're just one of the younger generation, uh, you can be disinherited or exiled. It's less likely for young children, but someone who's like no longer a child officially. And it's supposed to be working and, and contributing, but they're not, or they're considered to have broken the contract in some other ways. They can just be disinherited and exiled. You are no longer part of this family kind of deal. Away with you. That's certainly a thing that could happen. I, that's less likely to happen with younger children. But I, I, various unpleasant things can happen to younger children who are considered to have broken the social contract. Right. That's that's the big that's a big weakness in that in the the very youngest, and this has been true for every society for all of time. Unfortunately, uh, the very youngest have no no recourse within the family to uh, if the if the family breaks a social contract with them, as in not provide their care education, they have no recourse, and that's why um, child abuse is such an invisible and uh, terrible problem because. There's, there's no, there's no appeal in the family structure, really. Having said that, the young person, at a certain point, they're going to be able to, then instead of being exiled and deserted, they can leave voluntarily. They can exile themselves, which means that they then deny the family defense and labor. Right. If they can make it to adulthood, they can pick up and leave, and then the family has put in 
some portion or the portion of work on the child, but hasn't gotten the benefit of their labor. So just the way it works. So how does this translate to Rokugan? Well, we certainly have already talked that this is family, like household family or media biological family. In Rokugan, every samurai is going to have obligations to their parents and to their children if they have them. And, and if not their own children, they're going to have brothers and sisters. They're going to have nephews and nieces. They're going to have cousins who, who are, you know, of the younger generation. So they'll, they'll, they'll be almost certainly, it's not absolutely true because it depends on the individual. Like the dragon clan are having a birth rate crisis. So maybe it's like, no, it is just you. <laughs> it's, just, it's just you. There's no one younger than you in this family. This is just it. Um, but other than, it is very common, even if you don't have, your characters not have children of their own, there may well be younger members of that, of your extended family, who you have obligations to. Right. As a player, you are playing uh, an adult pretty much, unless you're playing a very different kind of game, an adult, and you're not playing a venerable, aged adult. That So you are playing basically the middle generation here. That means you are expected to support and defend your children or the children of your family, and you are expected to respect and care for your parents and the older generation of your family, pretty much always. <laughs> you can't just forget them. As a GM working with your players, you need to figure out what beyond that base social expectation for the family, a particular character's family structure might impose upon them. So we talked about there are these uh, other provisions in the family that if you're part of a family, you have to follow. What are they? It's not arbitrary, but that's something as a player you want to figure. Is there any other family obligations that my particular family is going to impose on this structure? It might not be something you want to deal with, but it's certainly a place for uh, Nino and Giri and all kinds of uh, all kinds of story hooks and stuff. It's your particular uh, social uh, you know, family obligations in your family contract. I think it might be a thing for a lot of people one of the, one of the difficulties people have with the character generation in FFGs Edge Studios, the, our current Legend of Five Rings role playing game is Ninjo and Giddy, especially Giddy, because they just kind of think, surely my Giri is just what my Daimyo tells me to do. <laughs> but I think a good source of Giddy, as in the thing you write down on your character sheet, right, is is a family obligation. So like your your Daimyo saying go and, you know, be part of this delegation or go be, you know, go investigate this thing that's going on. But your your giddy that you write down could be you must make a good match because your family needs you to get a good marriage, right? And that's a, that's a perfectly valid giddy. It's nothing to do with your daimyo. You know, <laughs> daimyo, daimyo's got nothing to do with that. But it's a family giddy that you've got to deal with. And your ninja might be just, you know, I don't want to get married or I want to marry someone I love rather than someone who's a good match or I actually want to be ambitious and I don't really care about my marriage. Or another potential giddy is you must get ahead. You must, in order to provide for your, for the family and do your job, you've got to get yourself a good prestigious appointment 
And that could be a good giddy. And that's, again, not from your daimyo, that's from your family. Right. So I strongly encourage GMs and players to sit, to, to take a moment and think about whether there are any of these additional provisions in your particular family contract, you know, that, that you're working with. But that's one kind of contract. So the next kind of contract I wanted to talk about. So that, that's, that's been our topic for now. This has been talking about the social contract theory and how that will apply to Rockgen. And like say, like has been said, we hope this, you find this useful. We'd like to call out our sister podcast and our patrons. So we'll call it to Fortune and Strife, our affiliated, affiliated actual play podcast, currently on medical hiatus, but fingers crossed, soon. And we must also shout out our friends at D20 Radio, who have a huge amount of role-playing game-related podcasts. So there's something in there for anyone at D20 Radio. Our content is funded by the Community Discord Patreon, which supports our editing costs, as well as our website, where you can see and store some longer-term information, summary of our podcasts, uh, the results of our competitions that we've had, one-page adventures, all kinds of other RPG tools, and more. For our patrons, we will have special bonus content like Adventure Seeds, early access to our AP podcasts, and other things as we think of them. Online, you can find us at courtgamespod.com, at twitter.com slash courtgamespod, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash courtgames. But that is it for us this week. This is Kakita Kaori. May the fortunes favor you. And I have been Korvar, and until we meet again... Keep your jade handy.